In 2006, Stephen Miller, then a college student, took the stage at Duke University, representing the Duke chapter of Students for Academic Freedom. Making this event happen was not easy. Uh, we beseeched many departments, many institutions at Duke University for funding. Many of them wanted nothing to do with us. Those departments which rejected our requests are the literature department, the philosophy department, the Institute for U.S. Critical Studies. I see that many of you are happy that people on this campus don't want to support a debate of ideas. In the background, you can hear classmates who had gone to protest the event snickering at Miller. But he smiles. He likes it. Thirteen years later, he stands at a White House press briefing. Remember those? He's senior advisor to the president, addressing the press. Let's join mid-argument with CNN's Jim Acosta. This whole notion of, well, they could learn, you know, they have to learn English before they get to the United States. Are we just going to bring in people from Great Britain and Australia? Jim, it's actually, I have to honestly say, I am shocked at your statement that you think that only people from Great Britain and Australia would know English. It's actually, it reveals your cosmopolitan uh, bias to a shocking degree that in your mind, no, this is an amazing, this is an amazing moment. This is an amazing moment that you think only people from Great Britain or Australia would speak English is so insulting to millions of hardworking immigrants who do speak English from all over the world. Jim, have you honestly, Jim, have you honestly never met a, an immigrant from another country who speaks English outside of Great Britain and Australia? Is that your personal experience? Of course there are people who come But that's not what you said. And it shows, it shows your cosmopolitan bias. And I just want to say... It sounds like you're trying to engineer the and racial say, and ethnic flow of people into this country. Jim, this that policy. is one of the most outrageous, insulting, ignorant, and foolish things you've ever said. And for you, that's still a really... The, the notion that you think that this is a racist bill is so wrong and so insulting. Stephen Miller understands how language functions and how it can be used to inflame, confound, and control. But stuff like this is just a distraction. Miller has been radically successful in implementing draconian immigration and refugee policy, affecting millions. Immigrants held for months without hope of legal representation, family separation, children in cages. And that's not all. Miller molds much of President Trump's rhetoric and has written some of his most incendiary speeches. That's a lot of power, and he's only 34. So how'd he get there? Who is Stephen Miller? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is from Now This, the podcast where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. This week, we're looking into the only senior advisor to the president who is not in his immediate family. Stephen Miller is born to a wealthy Jewish family in Santa Monica, California. At a young age, fighting a perceived liberal bias in education would be a formative bit of Miller's iconoclasticity, his willful journey towards being seen as someone going against the grain of accepted thought. Before he went off to college at Duke, in a conservative publication, Miller wrote, quote, 
I just graduated from Santa Monica High School, an institution not of learning, but of indoctrination, end quote. What's the significance of Santa Monica within L.A. specifically? What does Santa Monica mean to a person from L.A.? Well, it means affluence. Um, and it means liberalism. But I think when, when people say Santa Monica, they think of the ocean, they think of beautiful houses, and they think a bastion of liberalism. That's Lori Weiner. She's the co-founder and an editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books. But lately, she's been interested in Stephen Miller. She too is Jewish and lives in Los Angeles. And for LA Mag, she tracked down a bunch of Miller's high school classmates to try to understand him. Some of his classmates had very interesting theories. One is that Santa Monica could make you right-wing in that they are so in lockstep with their liberalism and, and often don't fully examine their position. So that could drive a person crazy, especially someone who is a born oppositionist, which he completely is. He was pretty shy in middle school. 9-11 radicalized him. He came out of his shell. He became very confident very quickly. What's amazing to me is how he emerged almost fully formed. His style of argumentation, all of it, you can see pretty clearly on display in his high school years. At 16, Miller penned an op-ed on out-of-control political correctness at his school, upset that Spanish language options were provided because, quote, there are usually very few, if any, Hispanic students in my honors classes. Continuing, and while we're on the subject of personal accomplishment, should any student accomplish the opportunity to have sex, our school is happy to help. He was griping about the school providing condoms. He ends with, quote, Osama bin Laden would feel very welcome at Santa Monica High School. Because everyone knows Al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization behind 9-11, loves premarital sex and diversity. He was so well-known for his extreme views and bizarre behavior at Santa Monica High that classmates made a short documentary about him. Ultimately, Miller's mother wouldn't allow the student filmmakers to show the film because she didn't think it reflected very positively on her son, Stephen. However, it has since made its way onto YouTube and includes some truly excellent Miller oratory featuring all the greatest hits. Hi, I'm Stephen Miller. Some of you may or may not know who I am. We don't have time to get into that right now. And this. I will say and I will do things that no one else in their right mind would say or do. And who could forget this? Am I the only one who is sick and tired of being told to pick up my trash? And we have plenty of janitors who are paid to do it for us. One woman, her name was Jenna Hartley. She was very interesting. She was in middle school at Franklin with him and then high school. So she saw the whole transition and she remembered a barbecue that she had been at where Stephen Miller was when they were only 12 or 13 years old. And she remembers him making very funny comments like snide comments that kind of came out of nowhere but kind of made you laugh with their audacity. And she thought, oh, this guy's kind of interesting. You know, this guy's kind of funny. He's interesting. He's really kind of out there. So... At that time, it was just interesting and funny and weird. That was before he found his political path. During this time, he also nourished a skill that would become hugely important to his future career. One of his famous high school stories was he said that his civics teacher put the American flag on the floor and invited people to step on it and walk all over it. I found that teacher. He's teaching in Africa. 
He did not want me to use his name because he is Canadian and he was afraid that they'll never be able to get back into the country if I used his name. So I, I did not use his name. But I found him and, and I also talked to other students who were in that class. And that is, of course, not what he did. He was respected teacher. He was one of the students felt he was one of the best teachers at Santa Monica High. He taught civics. He was very rational and calm. And he did put the flag on the floor. It was in a lecture about symbolism. And he was saying, what does the flag mean when it's on the flagpole? Now, what does it mean when it's on the floor? Does it mean something different? So it was a kind of a thoughtful exercise, but he did not put it on the floor to invite people to trample on it. And this is a early example of Stephen Miller's nefarious argumentation. And, um, and it did get him a great deal of attention. And it was just simply a lie. One student that he went to high school with told me that he said to her, and this is almost too perfect, I don't necessarily believe this happened, but she confronted him about this flag incident. And he said, it doesn't matter what's true. It just matters what people believe. Maybe said it. Um, it's kind of too perfect. You know, maybe she just remembered it that way. But that's what I mean about him being fully formed. Like that's a very sophisticated kind of thuggery that he was very adept at when he was 16 years old. The only thing I lied about when I was 16 was why my jacket smelled funny when I got back from a walk to the park. Miller, like most high schoolers, was also immature and mischievous, plotting stunts like a right-wing jackass. You know, the Johnny Knoxville show on MTV. There was a woman's marathon race at the high school, and he cheated. He came in at the very end and... Uh, and then won and to show that men were superior to women, but but he actually entered uh, the race late. So it's, it's got that combination of mischievous, joking, cheating, and the Declaration of Supremacy, you know, all neatly wrapped up. Nick Muroff, who covers immigration and the Department of Homeland Security for The Washington Post, elaborated on what the teenage Miller tells us about the 30-something Miller. He's basically someone who has been a polemicist all his life, starting back in high school, and he's been surrounded by liberals and progressives. And so he's really just waging one long argument, and, and Trump has given him a vessel to really translate that argument into power and, and influence far beyond, I think, you know, what he's ever experienced. Now that Miller is literally next to the president of the United States, what has he done? Marisa Franco, the director and co-founder of Mijente, a political, digital, and grassroots hub for Latinx organizing and movement building, explained. When it comes to just immigration, I mean, it's, 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 been, a, it's been a full-scale attack. I think, um, obviously, what's happened at the border. And there's both the policy, but just the posture. You know, we want to shut this down. We want to let as few people in as possible, whether it's legal or not. And I think that's been a really significant shift. I think the thing to really kind of clock about Miller is that the, the attack on the asylum system and, and legal immigration. One of the, the biggest ones that hasn't gotten a ton of attention, but, you know, for listeners who have been tracking Miller's career will be familiar with, that's the, the so-called public charge rule that he advocated for so long through U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And what that policy is essentially trying to do is to render ineligible a greater number of immigrants based on their use of any kind of public benefits. 
And so what Miller was seeking to do and, you know, is to take a longstanding principle, which is that immigrants who come to the United States shouldn't become a public charge, meaning a, a burden on society, and, and expand the types of categories that that would include to involve a much broader range of, of goods and services. And so he has told you know, others for, for years that he thought that this would have socially transformative effects on, on American society, both in terms of limiting the number of immigrants that are allowed to come to the United States each year with green cards or to stay here, but also in terms of the, the types of, of folks who are coming. And this fits very closely with what you hear the administration talking about in terms of ending so-called you know, chain migration um, in favor of, of what they call a more merit-based model, essentially to try to screen out folks based on their job skills, but also at the same time slashing the overall number of people who are coming to the United States. Miller also helped to cull White House staff of those less extreme than him. He was reportedly key in ousting former Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nelson because she wasn't tough enough on immigration. It's important to note that in a White House with tons of turnover, Miller has remained, outlasting his mentor, Steve Bannon, and dozens of other officials. I think that he is, as much as anyone in this White House, driven by, by ideology and, and motivated by the kinds of grievances that I think animate the president. I do think that this is a source of deep connection with Trump. They both kind of share this sense of grievance that the elites have mocked them and laughed at them, and they're determined to win in the end. Stephen Miller didn't invent anti-immigrant sentiment in America. He's just embracing and further weaponizing a force built deep within this country. It was clear to me very early on that Stephen Miller, probably more than most people in this country, understands the power of immigration law. And the power of immigration law comes out of its history. My name is Kelly Lytle Hernandez, and I'm a professor of history, African-American studies, and urban planning at UCLA. And I study race, immigration, and the rise of mass incarceration in the United States. And in particular, I look at the long threads of white supremacy that are woven into our immigration and our carceral regimes. Dr. Hernandez took note when Miller's influence became apparent in the Trump administration's immigration policy. When he first hit my radar, I was certainly unnerved. It was clear to me that Stephen Miller understands the power of immigration control and its intricacies, that he had dedicated himself to the study of immigration law and policy, and he knew exactly which levers to pull. He um, has been a, a critical player, certainly, in this administration to empower the administration to fully exercise its authority in this area, its executive authority. You saw this very early in the executive orders that were coming out um, of the administration. He knew exactly which steps to take on the ground. He understood that we don't have a massive infrastructure for enforcing immigration law. It's big. It's very big. But what we would really need in this country to be able to identify undocumented immigrants across the country was to mobilize our local law enforcement to turn them all into immigration enforcement officers. 
And when they started to make those moves, that was the sign of this next generation of U.S. immigration control, when you blend and bleed it into local law enforcement so that every traffic stop, every visit to a home around domestic abuse becomes an opportunity for immigration law enforcement. It hasn't always been that way. But this type of policy has always been linked to a fear of black and brown people. The U.S. federal government did not begin to control immigration to the United States until the late 19th century. One of the very first pieces of law that was passed by the Congress to control immigration to the United States was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which prohibited Chinese workers from entering the country for 10 years. This law was followed up upon with the Geary Act of 1892, which again prohibited Chinese workers from entering the country for 10 years, but also required Chinese workers to acquire legal documents of residency, certificates of residency, if they wanted to stay in the country. If they didn't get these certificates of residency, they would be called undocumented immigrants, subject to up to one year in prison and forced removal from the country, i.e. deportation. This is the very first federal deportation campaign in the country's history. It's explicitly racialized. It's a series of laws that are passed with descriptions of Chinese immigrants as mongrel outsiders. And the U.S. Supreme Court begins to weigh in on this new authority to force people out of the country. And in a series of cases now known as the Chinese exclusion cases in Che Chan Ping, Fang Yu Ting, Wang Wing, and several others, the U.S. Supreme Court lays out the power to deport in the United States. And this power remains with us today. What the Supreme Court finds is the following things. One, deportation is not a punishment for crime. If deportation is not a punishment, if it is instead just an administrative procedure, and if it's not um, punishing a crime, then the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution do not apply to its procedures. So people who are in deportation proceedings are not categorically protected by the United States Constitution, protected against indefinite detention, cruel and unusual punishment, and so on. In the Chinese exclusion cases, the U.S. Supreme Court also ruled that being in the United States without authorization is not a crime. Again, if you haven't committed a crime, your removal from the country is not subject to the U.S. Constitution. And then finally, in May of 1896, in the Wang Wing ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court found that detention in the United States is, quote, not imprisonment in a legal sense. So to be detained in the United States in the process of force removal, if it's not imprisonment, is not covered by the United States Constitution. So what you have in a set of rulings that were issued in late 19th century in a debate as to whether or not Chinese immigrants then disparaged, ruthlessly disparaged, as mongrel outsiders, is a set of decisions and policies and procedures where U.S. immigration control is separate and apart and untethered from the United States Constitution. I should also add here that the Wang Wing ruling of May of 1896 was issued on the very same day by the very same court that gave us Plessy v. Ferguson. 
Plessy v. Ferguson, of course, as you know, is the ruling that gave us racial segregation, separate but equal, Jim Crow America. So the very same court, the very same people, the very same mind and culture and politics that gave us Jim Crow America is the court, the people, the mind, the culture, the politics that gave us immigration control. Basically, Dr. Hernandez is pointing to how case law, vintage court decisions from an American era even more openly xenophobic than our own, informs and enables the policy Stephen Miller has pushed for, and by and large, been able to enact. What's important to understand about these rulings is that they're not this thing called necessarily history or the past. They live, they are the precedents of our lives today. And in those Supreme Court rulings, you have the creation of a system, of a logic that can disappear in our everyday lives because it no longer needs to name itself. It's so deeply embedded within the system. But immigration control in particular, when you go back and you read Fong Yu Ting, Wang Wing, Che Chan Ping, which you still see in the footnotes of U.S. Supreme Court rulings today, you will understand how much our everyday lives today are predicated upon a white supremacy from the late 19th century. And so when President Trump talks about making America great again, of course U.S. immigration law was one of the first places that he went. One, there's extraordinary executive power over immigration. And two, it is one of the most unrepentant areas of white supremacy in U.S. law, policy, and life. It's really important to note that the type of racially charged rhetoric Miller has used against the other has a history that goes way beyond black and brown people. When people in the United States want to advocate for immigration restrictions, but they don't want to come across as racist, they seize upon the notion that the people coming here are a threat to public safety. This certainly goes all the way back to the late 19th century, if not the early 20th century. You can see it very clearly in the effort to restrict Italian immigrants, Jewish immigrants, other white immigrants to the country. They were being cast as threats to public safety, threats to members of the current community. Finding and blaming the other is as American as apple pie. And I think who those folks are often changes over time, depending on time, place, conditions. I think recognizing that it's important to also mark that blackness and the role of race and the legacy of slavery, I think plays a, a significant role. Um, and then I think people look around and, and I think what the country's changing, what Trump did um, in the 2016 election really tapped into, um, you know, a feeling of, of disorientation, of resentment, um, and and really stoked it. And I mean, it was like, that was kind of like the dry, you know, the dry wood. And the match was, you know, the other is the immigrant. This is America. And that's visible in the disproportionate impact of the immigration enforcement apparatus on black immigrants. It is no accident that the most disparately impacted community by deportation are black immigrants. This is baked into the system. It is not random. It is not variable. It is the way the system and the regime was built to operate, reaching all the way back to the 19th century. So I just encourage people to 
question the fact that when you see children being taken from their families and placed into warehouses and given nothing but in a space blanket, very little food, dying in custody, that this is not an accident. It's not an aberration from the American way. People always ask, how could we be doing this? We're doing it because it's baked into our system, and we've been doing it for a very long time. This is a show about power. And in a White House role Stephen Miller shares with the president's daughter and son-in-law, how much power can he possibly have, and how did he get it? Stephen Miller is a you know political speechwriter and policy advisor, came up in the ranks in the GOP, actually has a history in the anti-immigrant branch of the GOP. Early on, he worked for Representative Michelle Bachman and John Shadegg of Arizona, but he really kind of got his break with Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama. And Senator Jeff Sessions, I think, is regarded as one of the most virulent anti-immigrant members, then members of the Senate, obviously went on to become attorney general. Jeff Sessions was an early adopter of the Trump agenda. I think he was among the first to formally endorse Trump. And Stephen Miller really went with him and joined the campaign, started as a speechwriter. But I think where we can say where he's ended up is when you look at the Trump agenda with respect to immigration, his fingerprints are all over it. You've had directors of Homeland Security of Immigration and Customs Enforcement come and go. There's been a revolving door similar to all the other political positions in the Trump administration. But what has remained is Stephen Miller. And and I think when we look back at the Trump administration's record on immigration and what they've done, he will be, I think, regarded as the architect of that. Much of that architecture comes down to language. One of Miller's main jobs is speechwriting, and he has scripted some of Trump's major policy speeches and rally diatribes. I think Miller, almost more than anyone else in the White House, has given the president language and a kind of ideological cohesion to his Make America Great impulses and the kind of grievances that underlie that agenda. And by that, I mean, he's written some of the president's more formal speeches, obviously his inaugural address, as well as some of his UN speeches. But I think he, more than anyone in the White House, pays very close attention to language and words and tries to connect some of the gut feelings of the president that the president has with policy formulations and signature phrases that can really set the president apart. He's both a speechwriter, but also kind of think of him as a scriptwriter. He's trying to to script and produce the Trump presidency, perhaps to a greater degree than anyone else. And one reason we can say that is because he's one of the longest lasting core members of the Trump team outside of Jared and Ivanka and and some of the other cabinet members. Miller is is one of the longest surviving members of the of the president's inner circle who was really there from early stages of the campaign. Today, refugee policy Miller has been successful in implementing makes it more difficult for refugees to reach the United States. Well, uh, you know, a, a more recent example is the the remain in Mexico policy which the administration calls the migrant protection protocols and that was a, a policy response formulated largely by Miller, to the issue of Central Americans coming 
across the border to seek asylum in ever greater numbers. This really reached a crisis level last spring. And even before that, the administration and Miller was working on this plan to have asylum seekers go back to Mexico and wait on the Mexican side of the border while their asylum claims were processed by U.S. courts. And what we saw last year is that the administration, by both browbeating and threatening Mexico and broadcasting its intentions to do this, really managed to ramp up the number of people who were uh, required to go back across the border and wait in, in Mexico and use that to deter more asylum seekers from coming. So despite a lot of the criticism that, as well as the legal challenges to this process, the administration has been able to continue expanding and implementing that. This attitude towards refugees is especially ironic, given that the United States is responsible for some of the conditions that have led to the mass migration of Central Americans in the first place. I think one thing that, you know, is, is a slogan that inside of the immigrant rights community is, we are here because you are there. During the Cold War period, the United States government sided with right-wing governments and military governments in many cases against uh, left-wing insurgents. And in Guatemala in particular, the seminal moment really came in the early 1950s when a democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz, who was elected on a promise to bring land reform, not a uh, communist revolution, he was overthrown with CIA participation. And and the ripple effects of that, I think, continue to, to play out today that you saw the United States backed the right-wing military government in El Salvador in the 70s and 80s, and after the, the left-wing Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua in the 70s, the United States supported the Contras against the Sandinistas. When countries are moving in a direction that is not aligned with those, those desires of those particular um, forces, um, you know, the United States has intervened and has intervened sometimes in implicit ways behind the scenes and sometimes in explicit ways and just straight up intervention. And that is a very long history in Latin America. Central America isn't the only place that has experienced U.S. intervention. And U.S. intervention isn't the only thing that pushes people to migrate. But we often neglect to consider how American action has led to conflict and instability all over the world. And it isn't just geopolitics that's worth thinking about. Immigration also concerns U.S. citizens and their rights as citizens. Sorry to go all, and then they came for me, Anya, but this ultimately will affect you, no matter who you are or where you come from. The vast majority of the U.S. population, in fact, lives in the border zone. Any area within 100 miles of a land or sea border is the border zone. And what's important for even U.S. citizens to consider is that when it comes to U.S. immigration law enforcement, Fourth Amendment rights are fuzzy for all of us. The U.S. Border Patrol and ICE has extraordinary authority to stop and question people when it comes to U.S. immigration enforcement within the border zone. And so even us as citizens are watching a stripping away of our 
our rights, our constitutional rights through U.S. immigration control. So you might think that you live really far from the border. You probably don't. You might think that you're a citizen, so immigration control doesn't matter to you. In fact, it does. And I would encourage people to think through that this is an issue not just for immigrants, it's for citizens. We know that a lot of civilian technology only exists because it was needed and built for the military, even the Internet. And that also applies to surveillance. As a surveillance apparatus is built for immigration, it will likely be applied to the rest of the country. With respect to surveillance, government surveillance of populations, immigrants and folks, I think, and and like in terms of region, the border is a virtual laboratory. It's a testing ground for programs, tools, and technologies that are actually able to both analyze and but also predict behavior And if we think that whether it's because of profit or whether or not it's because of prevention or control, that that is not going to be extended to the general public. I think I think we're seriously um, we're we're seriously mistaken. I think it 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 starts in our most vulnerable, but it never stops. It never ends there. I think there's too many there's too many examples in history where where I think that that has proven to be unfortunately true. I don't come from an immigrant family. I am African-American, but I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border during the 1980s and the 1990s when the war on immigrants was escalating. We were heading toward Operation Gatekeeper in particular. And so when I grew up, before Operation Gatekeeper, the Border Patrol was in our communities. They were patrolling our transportation sites, the bus Um, depots, and they were patrolling through our communities. And so anyone could be stopped at any given time and questioned about their immigration status. That was terrifying for myself as a black child in the borderlands, someone who didn't personally fear the loss of my own parent, the loss of my own aunt or sister or myself to the deportation regime. But I watched as so many friends had to grapple with the possibility of going home after school and nobody being there. And this happened time and time again to friends and to loved ones who had to figure out what they're going to do when their parent or their child has disappeared into this regime. And what this would look like is people trying to organize, trying to get the money together for for bail or for a lawyer, Of course, we all know that if you get a lawyer, your chances of winning a deportation case are much higher, but most often failing to be able to do so. And having this person removed from your life for either a short period or long period of time, usually taken away to a place that they no longer had secure relations. So watching your family member be thrust into homelessness, into the despair of trying to figure out how to get back to you. Coming back to the United States, in many cases, under the threat of prison time if they were caught, this kind of stress wears on people and on families and on communities. I remember when Trump was was first elected, um, you know, a friend of mine, um, his son, you know, went to school and one of his good friends in school came up to him and said, I'm really sorry. I feel kind of sad. The kid is like, well, why? And he's like, well, you and your family are going to have to leave. All of you all are going to have to leave. And this is like, 
kid is kind of like consoling, but also just like kind of down with it. And that was something like you heard a lot. And I think you continue to hear a lot of really how this is taking, how it's impacting like children and how it's impacting kids in schools. I think people just have an increased fear. I think it's really impacted communities where people just aren't comfortable going out. People and and people just aren't sure what to do because it's so many different things and it's like a constant it almost feels like every week there's a new thing that you're just swimming upstream and if we don't do anything about this and we just let it slide i just think i'm just not sure where the bottom is at that point if we have another four years or four years plus of trump or the trump trumpism i don't know if you've heard about this but there's an election this year So if Stephen Miller is part of the Trump administration, won't this all go away if we have a new president? President Trump is not the first leader to recognize the power of turning on newcomers or people who are not, you know, part of of the group and of defining your core supporters in opposition to other members of society. And so I think his appeal for people who are frustrated, unhappy, feeling left behind by all the changes that have come to American society in recent decades, is that he's, he's promising to turn back the clock. He's promising to restore a version of the country that they feel is lost. That comes with restricting immigration and building a border wall, but also talking about the country in the way that the president does and not speaking in the way that other presidents have. Stephen Miller understands that uh, as well, better than anybody, and he will be the first to tell you that he would never pretend to kind of get in the way of the president he thinks is able to connect with his supporters sort of so viscerally and personally. And so they have unleashed some of these latent forces in in, in American society that, that were dormant and are running with them, and we'll see if they're able to carry them again in November. I would say that Stephen Miller is a very dangerous individual, but he's only dangerous because he understands how to leverage what is deeply rooted in our society. I would actually take one step back and encourage us all to wonder how far moderate America or the Democrats are from that position. In fact, it has taken all sides of the U.S. political spectrum to work together to create the system of mass deportation and mass incarceration, Democrats and Republicans together. We can vote Trump out of office. We can remove Miller from the equation of um, being an advisor in this area. We will still have the deeply rooted issues around race and iniquity and state practice in particular in the forms of immigration control and mass incarceration. Stephen Miller and President Trump are just the most recent manifestations of the most extreme forms of white supremacy in the United States. But slicing off the top of the most extreme forms will not get us to the place of justice and equity that I think so many people deep in their hearts truly want to get to. 
So in years past, if I were to go to a protest or, or march or something in Arizona, it's very, very, uh, it's very common to have Minutemen or any any kind of Trump outfit there. It's an open carry law, so they'll have like an AK-47 and they'll be up in your face. And, and there's two things that I often get told. One is go back to Mexico. And then the second is what part of illegal don't you understand? Uh, we're not against immigrants, you know, in, in kind of calmer moments. And I think what Stephen Miller's done, actually, is he's even gone beyond that movement and its core talking point, and he has gone after illegal immigration, and 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 they've actually gone as far as to posit, we don't want immigration to the United States. And I think that's a distinct shift that has been brought to bear in this administration. And again, I think it's been pushed by Stephen Miller. As a student at Santa Monica High School, Stephen Miller was intentionally absurd, a self-styled contrarian who wanted nothing more than to go against popular thought. But now he's molding the country using deeply ingrained thought with hundreds of years of history, the approval of the judiciary, and in line with the American status quo. Miller is the most effective member of the Trump administration, the architect of immigration policy that will almost certainly prove to be a durable legacy. We underestimate the world's Stephen Millers at our peril. The end result of this, though, is that our opponents, the media, and the whole world will soon see, as we begin to take further actions, that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. Thirteen years ago, an auditorium full of Duke students laughed at Stephen Miller. But it's really not so funny anymore. Next time, a man who turned a West Point education and some seed money from the Koch brothers into the most powerful diplomatic position in the world. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. A sincere thank you to our guests, Marisa Franco, the director and co-founder of Mihente, a political, digital, and grassroots hub for Latinx organizing and movement building. Kelly Lydell Hernandez, professor of history, African-American studies, and urban planning at UCLA, and the author of Migra, a history of the U.S. Border Patrol. Nick Miroff, immigration and Department of Homeland Security reporter at The Washington Post. And Lori Weiner, co-founder and editor at the LA Review of Books. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Additional research from PJ Evans. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, and Margot Wall. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube.